Section 2 of Lives of the Most Remarkable Criminals Who Have Been Condemned and Executed for Murder, the Highway, Housebreaking, Street Robberies, Coining, or Other Offenses, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Gallagher. Lives of the Most Remarkable Criminals Who Have Been Condemned and Executed, Volume 1, edited by Arthur L. Haywood. The Preface The clemency of the law of England is so great that it does not take away the life of any subject whatever, but in order to the preservation of the rest, both by removing the offender from a possibility of multiplying his offenses, and by the example of his punishment intending to deter others from such crimes, as the welfare of society requires should be punished with the utmost severity of the law. My intention in communicating to the public the lives of those who, for about a dozen years past, have been victims to their own crimes, is to continue to posterity the good effects of such examples, and, by a recital of their vices, to warn those who become my readers from ever engaging in those paths which necessarily have so fatal an end. In the work itself I have, as well as I am able, painted in a proper light those vices which induce men to fall into those courses which are so justly punished by the legislature. I flatter myself that however contemptible the lives of the criminals, etc., may seem to the eyes of those who affect great wisdom and put on the appearance of much learning, yet it will not be without its uses amongst the middling sort of people who are glad to take up with books within the circle of their own comprehension. It ought to be the care of all authors to treat their several subjects so that while they are read for the sake of amusement, they may, as it were, imperceptibly convey notions both profitable and just. The adventures of those who, for the sake of supplying themselves with money for their debaucheries, have betaken themselves to the desperate trade of knights of the road, often have in them circumstances diverting enough, and such as serve to show us what sort of amusements they are by which vice betrays us to ruin, and how the fatal inclination to gratify our passions hurries us finally to destruction. I would not have my readers imagine, however, because I talk of rendering books of this kind useful, that I have thrown out any part of what may be styled interesting. On the contrary, I have carefully preserved this, and as far as the subject would give me leave, improved it, but with this caution always that I have set forth the entertainments of vice in their proper colors, lest young people might be led to take them for innocent diversions, and from figures not uncommon in modern authors, learn to call lewdness gallantry and the effects of unbridled lust the starts of too warm an imagination. These are notions which serve to cheat the mind, and represent as the road of pleasure that which is indeed the highway to the gallows. This, I conceive, was the use proper to be made of the lies, or rather the deaths of malefactors, and if I have done no other good in writing them, I shall have at least this satisfaction, that I have preserved them from being presented to the world in such a dress as might render the Academy of Thieving, their proper title, a thing once practiced before, and if one may guess from the general practice of mankind, might probably have been attempted again with success. How a different method will fare in the world, time only can determine, and to that I leave it. Yet considering the method in which I treat this subject, I readily foresaw one objection which occasioned my writing so long a preface as this, in order that it might be fully obviated. 
though in the body of the work itself I have carefully traced the rise of those corrupt inclinations which bring men to the committing of facts within the cognizance of the law, it still remains necessary that my readers also become acquainted, at least in general, with what those facts are which are so severely punished. In doing this I shall not speak of matters in the style of a lawyer, but preserve the same plainness of language which, as I thought it most proper, I have endeavored throughout the whole piece. The order of things requires that I should first of all take notice how the law comes to have a right of punishing those who live under it with death or other grievous penalties, and this in a few words arises thus. We enter into society for the sake of protection, and as this renders certain laws necessary, we are justly concluded by them in other cases for the protection of others. But of all the criminal institutions which have been settled in any nation, never was any more just, more reasonable, or fuller of clemency than that which is called the crown law in England. In speaking of this, it may not be improper to explain the meaning of that term, which seems to take its rise from the conclusion of indictments, which run always contra passum dicti domini regis, coronum et dignitatum suum, that is, against the peace of our sovereign lord the king, his crown and dignity, and therefore, as the crown is always the prosecutor against such offenders, the law which creates the offense is with propriety enough styled the crown law. The first head of crown law is that which concerns offenses committed against God, and anciently there were three which were capital, viz. heresy, witchcraft, and sodomy. But the law passed in the reign of King Charles II for taking away the writ de heretica cambarendo leaves the first not now punishable with death, even in its highest degree. However, by a statute made in the reign of King William, persons educated in the Christian religion who are convicted of denying the Trinity, the Christian religion, or the authority of the Scriptures, are for the first offense to be adjudged incapable of office, for the second to be disabled from suing in any action, and over and above other incapacities to suffer three years' imprisonment. As to witchcraft, it was formerly punished in the same manner as heresy, in the time of Edward III, one taken with the head and face of a dead man, and a book of sorcery about him, was brought into the king's bench, and only sworn that he would not thenceforth be a sorcerer, and so dismissed, the head, however, being burnt at his charge. There was a law against conjurations, enchantments, and witchcraft in the days of Queen Elizabeth, but it stands repealed by a statute of King James' time, which is the law whereon all proceedings of this day are founded. By this law, any person invoking or conjuring any evil spirit, covenating with, employing, feeding, or rewarding them, or taking up any dead person out of their grave, or any part of them, and making use of it in any witchcraft, sorcery, etc., shall suffer death as a felon, without benefit of clergy, and this whether the spirits appear, or whether the charms have taken effect or no. By the same statute, those who have taken upon them by witchcraft, etc., to tell where treasure is hid, or things lost or stolen should be found, or to engage unlawful love, shall suffer for the first offense a year's imprisonment, and stand in the pillory once every quarter in that year six hours, and if guilty a second time, shall suffer death, even though such discoveries should prove false, or charms, etc., should have no effect. Executions upon this act were heretofore frequent, but of late years, prosecutions on these heads in which vulgar opinion often goes a great way, have been much discouraged and discontinued. 
As for the last head, it remains yet capital by virtue of a statute made in the reign of Henry the Eighth, which had been repealed in the first of Queen Mary, and was revived in the fifth of Queen Elizabeth, by which statute, after reciting that the laws then in being in this realm were not sufficient for punishing that detestable vice, it is enacted that such crimes for the future, whether committed with mankind or beasts, should be punished as felonies without benefit of clergy. It is wide of my purpose to dwell any longer on those crimes which are by the law styled properly against God, seeing none of the persons mentioned in the following work were executed for doing anything against them. Let us therefore pass on to the second great branch of the crown law, viz. offenses immediately against the king, and these are either treasons or felonies. Of treasons there are four kinds, all settled by the statute of the 25th of Edward III. The two latter only, viz. offenses against the king's great or privy seal, and offenses in counterfeiting money, have anything to do with our present design, and therefore we shall speak particularly of them. Not only the persons who actually counterfeit those seals, but even the aiders and consenters to such counterfeiting are within the act, and by a statute made in the reign of Queen Mary, counterfeiting the sign manual or privy signet is also made high treason. By the same statute of Edward III, the making of false money, or the bringing into this realm in deceit of our lord the king and his people, was also declared to be high treason. But this act being found insufficient, clippers being not made guilty either of treason or of misprision of treason, it was helped in that respect by several other acts. But the fullest of all was the act made in the reign of the late King William, and rendered perpetual by a subsequent law made in the reign of her late majesty, and whereby it is enacted that whoever shall make, mend, buy, sell, or have in his possession any mold or press for coining, or shall convey such instruments out of the king's mint, or mark on the edges of any coin, current, or counterfeit, or any round blanks of base metal, or color or gild any coin resembling the coin of this kingdom, shall suffer death in case of high treason. At the time when the laws were made, coining and clipping were at a prodigious height, and practiced not only by mean and indigent persons, but also by some of tolerable character and rank, insomuch that these executions were numerous for some years after the passing of the said act, which as it created some new species of high treason, so it also made felony some other offenses against the coin, which were not so, or at least were not clearly so, before, viz to blanch copper for sale, or to mix blanch copper with silver, or knowingly or fraudulently to buy any mixture which shall be heavier than silver, and look, touch, and wear like gold, but be manifestly worse, or receive or pay any counterfeit money at a lower rate than its denomination doth import, shall be guilty of felony. A third head under which, in this cursory account of crown law, I shall range other offenses that are punished capitally, are those against our fellow subjects, and they are either committed against their lives, their goods, or their habitations. With respect to those against life, if one person kill another without any malice of forethought, then that natural tenderness of which the law of England is full interposes for the first fact, which in such a case is denominated manslaughter. Yet there is a particular kind of manslaughter which, by the first of King James, is made felony without benefit of clergy, and that is, where a person shall stab or thrust any person or persons that have not any weapon drawn, or that have not first struck the party which so 
stab, or thrust, so that the person or person so stabbed or thrust shall die within six months next following, though it cannot be proved that the same was done of malice aforethought. This act it is which is commonly called the statute of stabbing. As to murder properly so called, and taking it as a term in the English law, it signifies the killing of any person whatsoever from malice aforethought, whether the person slain be an Englishman or not, and this may not only be done directly by wound or blow, but also by deliberately doing a thing which apparently endangers another's life, so that if death follow thereon he shall be adjudged to have killed him. Such was the case of him who carried his sick father from one town to another against his will in a frosty season. It would be too long for this preface, should I endeavor to distinguish the several cases which in the eye of the law come under this denomination. Having therefore a view to the work itself, I shall dis distinguish two points only from which malice prepense is presumed in law. Number one, where an express purpose appears in him who kills, to do some personal injury to him who is slain, in which case malice is properly to be expressed. Number two, where a person in the execution of an unlawful action kills another, though his principal intent was not to do any personal injury to the person slain, in which case the malice is said to be implied. As to duels where the blood has once cooled, there is no doubt but he who kills another is guilty of willful murder, or even in case of a sudden quarrel, if the person killing appear by any circumstance to be master of his temper at the time he slew the other, then it will be murder. Not that the English law allows nothing to the frailties of human nature, but that it always exerts itself where there appears to have been a person killed in cool blood. For this reason, the seconds at a premeditated duel have been held guilty of murder, nor will the justice of the English law be defeated where a person appears to have intended a less hurt than death, if that hurt arose from a desire of revenge in cool blood, for if the person dies of the injury it will be murder. So also, where the revenge of a sudden provocation is executed in a cruel manner, though without intention of death, yet it happen, it is murder. We come now to those kinds of killing in which the law, from the second method of reasoning we have spoken of, implies malice, and into which slain of others, those unfortunate persons of whom we speak in the following sheets, were mostly led either through the violence of their passions, or through the necessity into which they are often drawn by the commission of thefts and other crimes. Thus, were a person to kill another in doing a felony, though it be by accident, or where a person fires at one who resists his robbing him, and by such firing kills another against whom he has had no design, yet from the evil intention of the first act he becomes liable for all its consequences, and the fact, by an implication of malice, will be adjudged murder. Nay, though there be no design of committing felony, but only of breaking the peace, yet if a man be slain in the tumult, they will all be guilty of murder, because their first act was a deliberate breach of the law. There is yet another manner of killing, which the law punishes with the utmost severity, which is resisting an officer, civil or criminal, in the execution of his office, arresting a person, so that he be slain, yet, although he did not produce his warrant, the offense will be adjudged murder. And if persons who design no mischief at all do unadvisedly commit an idle wanton act, which cannot be attended with manifest danger, such as riding with a horse known to kick amongst a crowd of people, merely to divert oneself by putting them in fright, 
and by such writing a death ensues, there such a person will be adjudged guilty of murder. Yet some offences there are of so transcendent a cruelty that the law hath thought fit to difference them from the other murders, and these are three sorts, viz., where a servant kills his master, where a wife kills her husband, where an ecclesiastical kills his prelate to whom he owns obedience. In all these cases the law makes the crime petit treason. From crimes committed against the lives of men, we descend next to offences against their goods, in which, that we may be the more clearly understood, we shall begin with the lowest kind of thefts. The law calls it larceny, when there is felonious and fraudulent taking and carrying away the mere personal goods of another, so long as it be neither from his person or out of his house. If the value of such goods be under twelve pence, then it is called petty larceny, and it is punishable only by whipping or other corporal punishment. But if they exceed that value, then it is grand larceny, and is punishable with death, where benefit of clergy is not allowed. There are a multitude of offenses contained under the general title of grand larceny, and, therefore, as I intend only to give my readers such a general idea of crown law as may serve to render the following pages more intelligible, so I shall dwell on such particulars as are more especially useful in that respect, and leave the perfect knowledge of the pleas of the crown to be attained by the study of the several books which treat of them directly and fully. There was until the reign of King William a doubt whether a lodger who stole the furniture of his lodgings were indictable as a felon, inasmuch as he had a special property in the goods, and was to pay the greater rent in consideration of them. To clear this, a statute was made in the aforementioned reign, by which it is declared larceny and felony for any person to steal, embezzle, or purloin any chattel or furniture which by contract he was to have the use of in lodging. And by a statute made in the reign of Henry the Eighth, it is enacted that all servants, being of the age of eighteen years, and not apprentices, to whom goods and chattels shall be delivered by their masters or mistresses for them to keep, if they shall go away with or shall defraud or embezzle any part of such goods or chattels, to the value of forty shillings or upwards, then such false and fraudulent act be deemed an adjudged felony. But besides simple larceny, which is divided into grand and petty, there is a mixed larceny, which has a greater degree of guilt in it, as being a taking from the person of a man or from his house. Larceny from the person of a man either puts him in fear, and then it is a robbery, or it does not put him in fear, and then it is a larceny from the person, and of this we shall speak first. It is either committed without a man's knowledge, and in such a case it is excluded from benefit of clergy, or it is openly done before the person's face, and then it is within the benefit of clergy, unless it be in a dwelling-house and to the value of forty shillings, in which case benefit is taken away by an act made in the reign of the late queen. Larceny from the house is at this day in several cases excluded from benefit of clergy, but in others it is allowed. Robbery is the taking away violently and feloniously the goods or money from the person of a man, putting him in fear, and this taking is not only with the robber's own hands, but if he compel, by the terror of his assault, the person whom he robs to give it himself, or bind him by such terrible oaths that afterwards in conscience he thinks himself obligated to give it, it is a taking within the law, and cannot be purged from any delivery afterwards. Yea, where there is a gang of several persons, only one of which robs, they are all guilty as to the circumstance of putting in fear, where 
wherever a person attacks another with circumstances of terror, as though fear oblige him to part with his money, though it be without weapons drawn, and the person taking it pretend to receive it as an alms. And in respect of punishment, though judgment of death cannot be given in any larceny whatsoever, unless the goods taken exceed twelve pence in value, yet in robbery such judgment is given, let the value of the goods be ever so small. As to crimes committed against the hesitations of men, there are two kinds, viz. burglary and arson. Burglary is a felony at common law, and consists in breaking and entering the mansion-house of another in the night-time with an intent of committing a felony therein, whether that intention be executed or not. Here, from the best opinions, is to be understood such a degree of darkness as hinders a man's continence from being discerned. The breaking and entering are points essential to be proved in order to make any fact burglary. The place in which it is committed must be a dwelling-house, and the breaking and entering such a dwelling-house must be an intent of committing felony and not a trespass. And this, much, I think, is sufficient to define the nature of this crime, which, notwithstanding the many examples which have been made of it, is still too much practiced. As to arson, by which the law understood maliciously and voluntarily burning the house of another by night or by day, to make a man guilty of this, it must appear that he did it voluntarily and of malice aforethought. Besides these, there are several other felonies which are made so by statute, such as rapes committed on women by force and against their will. This offense was anciently punished by putting out the eyes and cutting off the testicles of the offenders. It was afterward made a felony, and by a statute in Queen Elizabeth's reign, excluded from benefit of clergy. By an act made in the reign of King Henry the Seventh, taking any woman, whether maid, wife, or widow, having any substance, or being heir apparent to her ancestors, for the lucre of such substance, and either to marry or defile the said woman against her will, then such persons, and all those procuring or abetting them in the said violence, shall be guilty of felony, from which, by another act in Queen Elizabeth's reign, benefit of clergy is taken. Also by an act in the reign of King James I, any person marrying their former husband or wife being then alive, such persons shall be deemed guilty of felony, but benefit of clergy is yet allowed for this offense. As it often happens that boisterous and unruly people, either in phrase or out of revenge, do very great injuries unto others, yet without taking away their lives, in such a case the law adjudges the offender who commits a mayhem to the severest penalties. The true definition of a mayhem is such a hurt whereby a man is rendered less able in fighting, so that cutting off or disabling a man's hand, striking out his eye or foretooth, were mayhems at common law. But by the statute of King Charles II, if any person or persons, with malice of forethought, by lying in wait, unlawfully cut out or disable the tongue, put out an eye, slit the nose, or cut off the nose or lip of any subject of his majesty, with an intention of maiming or disfiguring, then the person so offending, their counsellors, aiders, and abettors, privy to the offence, shall suffer death, as in cases of felony, without benefit of clergy which act is commonly called the Coventry Act, because it was occasioned by the slitting of the nose of a gentleman of that name for a speech made by him in Parliament. Footnote. Sir John Coventry, M.P. for Weymouth, in the course of a debate on a proposed levy on playhouses, asked, quote, Whether did the king's pleasure lie among the men or the women that acted? Unquote. 
This open allusion to Charles' relations with Nell Gwynne and Mal Davies enraged the court party, and on December 21, 1670, as Sir John was going to his house in Suffolk Street, he was waylaid by a brutal gang under Sir Thomas Sandys, dragged from his carriage, and his nose slit to the bone. This outrage caused great indignation, and the Coventry Act mentioned in the text was passed 22 and 23 Charles II. The perpetrators of the deed escaped. End footnote. As nothing is of greater consequence to the Commonwealth than public credit, so the legislature hath thought fit, by the highest punishments, to deter persons from committing such facts for the lucre of gain as might injure the credit of the nation. For this purpose, an act was made in the reign of the late King William by which forging or counterfeiting the common seal of the governor and company of the Bank of England, or of any sealed bank bill given out in the name of said governor and company for the payment of any sum of money, or of any bank note whatsoever signed by the said governor and company of the Bank of England, or altering or raising any bank bill or note of any sort is declared to be felony without benefit of clergy. Upon this statute there have been several convictions, and it is hoped men are pretty well cured of committing this crime. By that care those in the direction of the bank have always taken to bring offenders of this kind to justice. By an act also passed in the reign of King William, persons who counterfeit any stamp, which by its mark relates to the revenue, shall be guilty of felony without benefit of clergy, and upon this also there have been some executions. But as the public companies established in this kingdom have often occasion to borrow money under their common seal, which bonds so sealed are transferable and pass currently from hand to hand as ready money, so for the greater security of the subject, the counterfeiting the common seal of the South Sea Company, or altering any bond or obligation of the said company, is rendered felony without benefit of clergy. Some other statutes of the same nature, in respect to lottery tickets, etc., have been made to create felonies of the counterfeiting thereof, but of these and some other later statutes I forbear mentioning here, because I have spoken particularly of them in the cases where persons have been punished for transgressing them. As I have already exceeded the bounds which I at first intended should have restrained my preface, so I forbear lengthening it in speaking of lesser crimes, few of which concern the persons whose lives are to be found in the following volume. Therefore I shall conclude here, only putting my readers once more in mind that by this work the intent of the law in punishing malefactors is more perfectly fulfilled since the example of their death is transmitted in a proper light to posterity. End of section 2 Recording by Jim Gallagher